Luke 16, uh, verses 19 through 31 is the first uh, passage, and then we're going to do Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. So that's uh, first the story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus uses to teach about um, um, life after death, you might call it, Uh, and then the cleansing of the ten lepers in Luke 17. Uh, where Jesus uh, closes with, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well, after only one of ten that he cleansed, uh, returned to him to glorify uh, the Lord. Um, before I read these uh, texts, I'm going to give you just like a, a brief introduction kind of to where I'm going. <coughs> Excuse me. The interactions that the Lord Jesus has in the Gospels, they are... Uh, revealing. Um, sometimes we can simply dwell at the surface level and just be like, oh wow, Jesus is powerful. Oh wow, he healed a man. Oh wow, that woman had great faith. And there's uh, importance to be gathered in, in those kind of meditations. But normally what is, is going on with the Lord Jesus and his interactions in the Gospels is He's revealing something about the true interpretation of the Old Testament because he is normally in discourse with scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees or high priests, uh, lepers, uh, rich men, etc. And I want you to never forget that these people in the Gospels are, um, especially if they're members of the people of Israel, they are part of the people of God at the time. Um, they are what we might call the visible church in the scriptures. Now, many of them were about to be driven out of the church because of their rejection of Christ, but never forget that Jesus is talking to church people normally in the Gospels. And when he talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's talking to the leaders of the church people. And Jesus, he frequently corrects them and presents himself as um, one of many figures in the Old Testament, like the promised shepherd of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 34, who would lead the people where the false shepherds had not. And when Jesus offers corrections, there are always many lessons to learn. You can say about those lessons, uh, just as you can basically say about all of Scripture, that there are principles being presented that are not exclusive to the original audience. Right? So it's almost like the truth behind the words. Now, that doesn't mean it's hidden, right? but that with study and prayer and reflection and dependence upon the Spirit, you can see the timeless lesson that Jesus is giving us. For example, the lesson for us in uh, Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, is not going to be to go to show yourself to the priest. Right? There's something beyond it or behind it, as it were. And these principles are for you as much as they were for them. To say it another way, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, the word of God is to the people of God, and it is profitable at all times. Now recall that that verse, remember 2 Timothy 3, uh, it's part of the New Testament, but it is spoken or written technically at a time where the only written scriptures or the only Bible the people of God would have had was the Old Testament. Right? The New Testament was still being written. The New Testament was still being formed. 
So when he says every word of God is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, he's not just saying the things that I'm saying as the Apostle Paul, but he's basically, exclusively, referring to the Old Testament. And by implication, because of what the New Testament says about itself, we apply the same truth to that, too. That the New Testament is part of the Scriptures. It's part of the Word of God that's profitable at all times. So, what is, or what are the principles that we're going to uh, look at? I'll give you five, and then we'll read the two passages. We'll probably read one, and then talk about it, and then read the other one. But there are five principles I want us to consider. Uh, the first is the sufficiency of the message of Scripture. The second is the supremacy of Scripture over the extraordinary. The third is the power of God through Scripture. And the fourth is the healing power of Christ that is ultimately meant to lead to worship. And fifth, just a very straightforward uh, application, as it were, if you do not worship the Lord, you are not living the life that he expects of you if you have received his grace. All right, so Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Let me read that for us. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He ate very well and dressed nicely. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, most likely a reference to leprosy, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar, Lazarus, died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one is risen from the dead. Okay, so let's talk about this parable itself for just a moment. There's a temptation to get lost in the weeds of this, and I think I accidentally just called it a parable, um, but it, the text doesn't say it was. Right? There's temptation to get lost in the weeds of this question. Is, is this a parable? Or is it literally or a literal picture of the way that the dead were at that time or even the way the dead are now? Now, 
you can somewhat simplify that unnecessary hang-up by seeing something that is very straightforward, I think, in the text. And that straightforward uh, truth that is there, regardless of whether you want to say it's a parable or a literal picture, is that there are and have always been a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous after death. There are and always has been a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous after death. Let's call it the intermediate state. Debates about Sheol or, or Hades versus hell and those kind of things and what happened to souls prior to Christ's resurrection. Let's set those aside. You only have two places mentioned. One is for the righteous and one is for the unrighteous. Whether the righteous and the unrighteous could communicate then or can communicate now does not really even seem germane to the overall point that Jesus is seeking to make. Now, he does say in verse 26 that there was a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. But there is no elaboration in the text or really indication if the greatness of this gulf is distance, right? Because if it's distance, how are they communicating, right? So easily, apparently. Or it's simply made so great, uh, so um, profound, as it were, that you cannot pass. It, the, the greatness of the gulf is not described. Again, I don't think it's germane to the point, but so many people get hung up on that looking at this text. Christ emphasizes, though, that once you've completed life as righteous or unrighteous, that is it. What you have done with the Scriptures determines whether you will go to be with the righteous or with the unrighteous. Now, another complicated verse is verse 25 in this text. It does not mean that Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom because his life was hard. Right? There is a temptation to teach that people who are down and out are the poor that Christ refers to in the Beatitudes, and therefore they will inherit eternal life. That's, that's not what's happening here, but it's a contrast. It doesn't mean that Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom because his life was hard, no more than it means that the rich man went to be tormented in Hades because his life was good or comfortable. Jesus' point there is that the bad for Lazarus has ceased. And the good for the rich man has ceased. There's no going back. There's no overturning it. Lazarus's blessedness will not end. And the rich man's torment will not end. So don't even imagine that you'll get your tongue cooled. And the same would go for anyone else who would be in this situation. But that's not the only thing that won't happen. Not only will the rich man's tongue not be cooled, but the other that won't happen is this. No one from the dead is going to go to the rich man's five brothers to tell them the truth. All right. Notice Jesus frames it around Abraham. Part of the reason he does this, I think, is um, in the Lord's omniscience knowing all things. Uh, it could be that he knew that some people would be tempted to say that Jesus is talking about what things would be like in the New Testament, that the Bible would take a prominent place or the Word of God would take a prominent place then in a way that it hadn't in the Old Testament. Now, granted, there may be some truth to that because in the Lord's providence, we nearly everyone has a Bible today and nearly no one had a Bible back then, but they did hear the Bible. But what is the truth? 
It's that even through Abraham, even through Moses and the prophets, even through the Old Testament scriptures, there was the message of salvation. Why won't this man coming back from the dead to go to the rich man's five brothers tell them the truth? Why why won't this happen? Because it won't do any good, is what Jesus says. If they do not receive the word, notice what he uses to refer to the word there. Moses and the prophets, implying the, the sufficiency of the Old Testament. Because that's one of the ways that the Old Testament is summarized. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the books of Moses, the books of the prophets, or sometimes they called it the law and the prophets, or sometimes they'd refer to um, the Psalms as a, a unit, right? Those kind of things. But he says, this man going back from the dead, it, it's not going to do any good, and it's not going to happen, even though his brother, this, this brother, the rich man, says, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus says, no, if they do not hear Moses the law, and the prophets, basically everything else, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This shows, again, the first thing I mentioned earlier, the sufficiency of the message of Holy Scripture. This brother, this rich brother, thought that he had a better understanding of what would bring his brothers to salvation, and Jesus uses Abraham as an example, or as his mouthpiece, as it were, here, and says, no, they have Moses and the prophets, that is sufficient. And the fact that they reject Moses and the prophets proves that if someone were to rise from the dead, they will not receive him, or receive salvation that way either, because they would continue in their hardness of it. But I think there's an, also a principle. Um, the first one is the sufficiency of Scripture, but the second the supremacy of Scripture over the extraordinary, right? Because I think that we could be tempted to, to somewhat think like this brother as well. Um, maybe you know someone who uh, has been in the church for quite some time or spent their life growing up in the church. And, you know, the, they sat under a faithful ministry. But for some reason, they reject the Lord's word and continue to do so uh, later in life. But as you think about it, you're tempted to say, well, maybe if something else happened, right? Maybe if there was some extraordinary experience, then they would believe. Now, God can do anything. I'm not dismissing that. But the principle that Jesus gives here is, If someone is not going to believe the word, then an extraordinary experience is not going to help them either, right? And there's there's another way that that's also the case because that extraordinary experience, let's say they do have it, if they're going to come to salvation through that experience, they're going to be driven to the word. And if they persist in rejection of the word, then the extraordinary experience hasn't done any good, right? So it's showing not just the supremacy of Scripture, or the sufficiency of the message of Scripture, but the supremacy of Scripture over the extraordinary. It doesn't mean there's no place for the extraordinary, but it is, supreme, it is subservient to Scripture. Peter actually even hints at this in his second epistle, where he talks about 
the clarity of the message that they preach in some way being on par or greater than him seeing Christ transfigured. It's a profound thing, but he says it. In Second Peter, I believe it's the end of uh, chapter 1. Uh, maybe another lesson next time. But So first, the sufficiency of Scripture. Second, the supremacy of Scripture. And then third is the power of God through Scripture. Right? This is how God humbles us and puts salvation wholly on his terms, uh, but also how something like Paul says in Ephesians 2, so that no man may boast right? when we appear before the Lord one day. Have you ever thought about just how foolish it is from the world's perspective that God saves people, gives them everlasting life through the reading of a book and the explanation of it. Just think about it. The profound, eternal, irreversible, unapproachable implications of reading the Bible and preaching it, right? Compared to the ways that we think important things are done, right? It's showing the power of God, but also showing how he puts down the wisdom of man, as Paul gets at as well in 1 Corinthians 2, mentioned last Lord's Day evening. I wonder as well, uh, is there an illusion? I think allusion is uh, the proper use of the term there, A-L-L, rather than illusion. Is there an allusion to Christ and his resurrection in this text? Um, where he says, uh, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, remember, part of Jesus' message in the Gospels is that uh, you believe in Moses, you would believe in me. Right? So Jesus rises from the dead, and that does not cease to be true. So maybe Jesus is giving a hint here uh, to the fact that once he rises from the dead... It's not a new message. If you still persist in rejection of Moses and the prophets, you will not receive my resurrection either. Right? You will not uh, bow the knee to that. It doesn't mean that Scripture is teaching us to uh, reject experience. It could point to the fact that Scripture prepares us for experience, and without affirming and submitting to Scripture, experience will be insufficient to lead us where Scripture is meant to take us. I use... Uh, I, I could think of some examples, but one comes comes to mind where uh, I don't know if you've ever been involved with, with someone who has claimed to have had a, a drastic, uh, a life-transforming religious experience, and they change for just a moment. But ultimately, there's no lasting fruit. Right? They don't have a greater love for the Lord. They don't have a greater love for His Word. Uh, his church, and all those things. Right? It's showing that experience is insufficient to lead us where only Scripture can take us. Right? Christ is, even through Abraham, he doesn't use uh, you know, a, a parable of someone who is not real. He uses a historical figure who would live thousands of years before this gospel was written and says that even... By implication, even through Abraham, the scriptures, 
the message of the scriptures were sufficient. If they won't believe the message, they're not going to believe uh, someone, though he come back from the dead. All right, so um, again, the sufficiency of the message of scripture, the supremacy of scripture over the extraordinary and the power of God through scripture. And let's look at Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. Uh, we basically have lepers in both passages. The word leper is not used in chapter 16, what we read at least, but it is here, starting at verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, that's Jesus, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a, as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. So it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned. And with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And by the way, he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this one foreigner? And he said to him, the Samaritan, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Again, we have lepers in both passages. Maybe there's something to that, but that'll be for another time. Here, there is a group of ten lepers, people with some form of skin ailment, uh, sores likely, uh, that would have uh, forbidden them from worshiping the Lord. Uh, that is, not forbidden them from having faith, but forbidden them from uh, going into the temple to worship. Uh, and you even get a hint at that in verse 12, where they see Jesus and they stand afar off, almost like Luke is hinting to the fact that Jesus is the true temple, as he points to. He is the tabernacle of God with man. Um, the one greater than the temple is here. And Anyway, uh, they even call Jesus Master, right? a term that's not often used for him, but it is used occasionally. But catch the flow of verse 14. Their cleansing seems to be their healing. And it is tied to their going to show themselves to the priests. Right? So when you have priest plural, you're referring to uh, the Levites, not the high priest. Right? You're referring to those priests who assisted the high priest, and that would have been the Levites. But what does this mean? What is happening when Jesus tells them to go to the priest? What Jesus is doing is restoring them to the worship of God. He is restoring them to their fullness so that they can serve the Lord, not just from the heart, but with the body, because they were prohibited by God's law from drawing near to the Lord in his worship. They cry, have mercy, and Jesus enables them to worship. Have mercy on me, master, they say, have mercy on us. And Jesus enables them to worship the Lord in full freedom. What a thought that that is. 
and afterwards only one of them returns after having obeyed Christ and being cleansed. The way I read the text is that all of them were cleansed, but only one returned. Only one, the Samaritans, right? It's just a detail that the Gospels like to throw in. A separate sentence itself at the end of verse 16. And he was a Samaritan. <laughs> Remember the Samaritan woman, right? John 4, right? how they would have been viewed. Um, this is to be shame on the Jews. Not just shame on the nine who did not respond in the way that this man did, but double shame on the nine. And those who would have had... Uh, privilege to uh, be a part of the ministry of Christ, right? Not just was there one out of ten, but this one out of ten, he was a Samaritan. And not just that he was a Samaritan, but he was a leprous Samaritan. He was the dirtiest of the dirty, you might say. It's a shame on those who would have heard and rejected Christ. And it's also an indication of the Gentiles beginning to respond rightly to the ministry of Christ, which we know the prophets speak of. But Jesus calls this act of the Samaritans, Samaritan, his faith in verse 19. Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. And what brings out the fullness of what Christ desired to give, as it were, is this man's faith. The Lord Jesus was even willing to cleanse men in hope that they would give themselves fully to him. And yet nine out of ten refused. They were satisfied with what we might call a partial healing. I I think of the the healing, I think it's in in Mark's gospel where Jesus has to touch the man's eyes twice, right? where he touches them once and he sees trees moving around and doesn't quite know what it is, but then he has to do it again because they're not trees, they're people. Right? And Jesus leads him to that, that fuller healing, as it were. But notice that, technically speaking, uh, the nine were only cleansed outwardly because they did not turn and worship the Lord in the way that this Samaritan had. They were satisfied with what we might call a partial healing. Full healing is displaying faith and being made fully well. This is seen in the perspective, again, of God's worship. And to bring it back to the final two points of the five I mentioned earlier, when we talked about Scripture for just a moment, now we're talking about uh, worship. The healing power of Christ is ultimately meant for worship. You encounter people, uh, especially if you're in the ministry, but probably in your family as well, someone who has been a bit down and out, and then they have, in, in the Lord's mercy, a very extreme reversal of circumstances. Like they're, they're able to beat an addiction. Uh, they, they get their family back. Um, uh, the Lord grants them you know, a job that they, they thought they'd never get. You know, just some kind of great mercy from God, and it leads them back to church for a month, right? We might call it a partial healing. Right, just a, 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 a head nod to the mercy of God, but not actually walking in the fullness of what the Lord has for you and what he intends to show you through that mercy. Right? The healing power of Christ is not just meant for taking the gifts of Christ and running away with them to do what you wish. 
the healing power of Christ is ultimately meant for worship. And then the, the last little bit, uh, if you do not worship the Lord after having received his grace, you are not living the life that he meant for those whom he dispenses his grace. I think of Jesus saying, to whom much is given, much will be required. Uh, I think of Jesus warning that uh, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, it would be worse for them in the day of judgment than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah because of the ministry of Christ being present. Right? That we are recipients of the Lord's mercy and grace so that we might worship him. Every time I read through this text in Luke 17, it just astounds me that Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. Right? He doesn't say, go declare it from the rooftops. He doesn't say, go tell your family. The very first thing he says is, go show yourselves to the priests. Why were they doing that? So that they could worship the Lord. So that they could stand in his temple and serve him. That was the mercy of Christ in its ultimate point. Um, just a side note, uh, Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, you can, is a proof that you can receive what we might call some of Christ without receiving all of him. Um, Romans 2 speaks of God's kindness or God's mercy, his patience with us, is not meant to be... Uh, uh, taken advantage of, but I think it's Romans 2.4, Paul says his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, ongoing life with him. This is shown by not only joining yourself to his church, by going to the priests, as it were, to use the language of Luke 17, but by uh, returning and with a loud voice glorifying God, just as this formerly leprous but still Samaritan uh, healed man did. And to put it even more simply, if you have any comments or questions, uh, I'm thinking of them now, there is a centrality on the church and her ministry in the work of Christ. Right? The point of Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, the overarching point is, is again, it's about the Scriptures. It's about how you must believe the scriptures. You're not guaranteed uh, this supernatural experience of someone coming back from the dead. And even if you were, if you reject the scriptures, it's not going to do you any good. And then in Luke 17, Jesus takes these leprous men and restores them to God's worship. And uh, again, there's a centrality on the church and her ministry or the worship of God in the, the life of Christ, in the work of Christ, in the speech of Christ, there is. And I would, my prayer is that this centrality would be shown in our lives as well. Any uh, thoughts or, or comments, or questions?
down below sure. where you're at and maybe it didn't even happen and maybe it was over there who knows but it's interesting in the context so that when you hear about it again you can sort of have a visual on it but I don't think that's going to that's not going to make me believe just anymore years off of your time in purgatory. huh? Yeah. <laughs> shit 15 time 15 years off your purgatory time yeah your, uh, it's interesting to see your pilgrimage <laughs> well no I mean I, that's, that's a good point you bring up just about people in uh, Israel and, and I mean any place like a, a great work of uh, Christian architecture right? um, you know I, mean, I know Mr. Ed has seen many of the cathedrals in Europe and been to different historical places uh, other people in our church have gone to Israel before I'm sure um, uh, you know meeting even meeting like an important Christian figure uh, we can use those experiences uh, to try to say that, you know, um, that they're greater than the scriptures, as it were. But the point that Jesus is making is that uh, you can say what you want about those experiences, but the ultimate question is, what did you do with the scriptures? Right? And if your quote-unquote growth in the faith or greater certainty that you have through those things, that they don't lead you to a greater love for the Lord and His Word. That it wasn't, you know, the Spirit of God, as it were, that were leading you. Or if it was, you were uh, quenching it or not, not submissive to it. Um, I think of, like, people who have already been baptized, who go to Israel, and then they get baptized in the Jordan River. Right? Yeah, you could take the, the, the experience, the emotional piece of it, and I think that runs them up sometimes. Yeah, and, it, and honestly, it distracts from the true blessing of even having the privilege to do those things. Right? They are meant to, like the Lord leaves those things to, you know, if we have the opportunity to confirm our faith, to maybe make us a more proficient teacher of the Bible. Um, you have memories to share. You'll have that experience, but um, you don't. You don't gain a different faith. You don't um, become more holy by going to these sites or these these people or anything like that. There's no special virtue in certain locations. But good points. 
Anything else? All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for the